Hi, welcome to the Sun Grove Podcast. We're so glad you decided to click and listen to this video. I hope it's encouraging to you wherever you are and draws you closer to Christ this week. Some of the headlines this week have been kind of surprising. Any of you watch the uh, U.S. women's national hockey team play for gold medal this week? It was good stuff, right? You're watching it. You're like, we made it to the gold medal final and I'm watching it. It goes all the way in regulation, tied up. Goes all the way through overtime, tied up. It goes to the shootout, and in the first five, it's tied up. Then it comes down to the next round, and it's just unbelievable because everything inside of me is just crying like to the team, like, somebody do something. Somebody do something. Give us the advantage. We want our team to win. Unbelievable. The girl deeks the goalie, leaves her out. Slams that in the net. We have the advantage. Then our goalie has to make the stop. She just stone cold killer stops the Canadian player. And it was just unbelievable. And I asked a guy in my circle group, he's a huge hockey fan and so am I. And so I was like, did you watch the gold medal match for the U.S. women's hockey team? He said, no. He said, I watched the Canadian gold medal match. And matches like that should not be, you know, settled on a skills competition, because I had forgotten he's from Canada. (laughs) Whoops. But how about curling? I mean, come on. Gold medal at curling. I'm telling you, I still don't understand the game. But all I know is that there will be anywhere that there is ice in the Northern Territory of Minnesota, there is going to be an outpouring of granite-throwing, curling players uh, coming up through the ranks. Just unbelievable. When you see headlines like that or experiences like that, you get in these competitions, you think, somebody do something. I want something to happen. Help our team have the advantage. But it's not just when the headlines read gold medal. It's when the headlines read tragedy. It's when the headlines read the heartbreak, when the headlines read, maybe the headlines came to you from a doctor, or maybe the headlines came to you through an email, or maybe they came through a text message. Maybe it was through the tears and the crying of a friend. Maybe it was through the news. And somewhere deep inside, you and I begin to cry, somebody, somebody do something. This evil's wrong. This evil's awful. Somebody do something. We've got to have change. We've got to experience something better. Somebody please do something. And when tragedy strikes or we have great crisis and evil in the world, people jump into the response mode. They want to react. They want to respond. And so politicians give speeches. Lawmakers propose new legislation. Law enforcement exposes security risks and, and helps us understand strategies. Special interest groups all make their case. Students create calls to action and social media goes absolutely nuts, doesn't it? Just absolutely nuts. Everybody's crying out in that mode, in that time. Everyone cries out, somebody do something. These injustices are wrong. These tragedies are brutal. Life is evil. We cry out, somebody do something in Genesis chapter six, God had created the world, but the course of the world had gotten to a critical tipping point. A tipping point that there was no potential recovery from. And so in Genesis chapter six, verse five, it says, the Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The inclination was only evil. And when was it? It was all the time. 
In those moments, God in his very nature is crying out, we gotta do something. We gotta do something. And so God in his wrath against sin out of his great pleasure and love for his creation, he literally through the flood destroys the earth and all that live on it except for eight people who are rescued as God had led them to build an ark and get the animals on it. And we watch God's initiation and we, we tremble at the thought of God's wrath. Like what would, how did that happen? And why would a God do that? Like what kind of God does that? And how different are God's thoughts than my thoughts that he would do that? And at the end, when they get off the ark, as things are clearing up for the first time in the sky, appeared a rainbow. And God gives a promise saying, listen, I will not address the sin of the world in that same way again. I'll address it, but I will not do it in that same way. And he made a promise to us through the rainbow. His wrath against sin is a fearsome thing. Any culture who begins to grab a hold of God and shove him out of the public places and culture is setting itself up to be fractured, to be, to be broken. A mentor in my life named Bob Shank, who runs a thing called the Master's Program, which is a top leadership and dreaming institute for top business leaders and some ministry leaders, a three-year program, he said this, the unredeemed heart is evil. It looks away from God who is holy. And a society, a society that elevates adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, and slander will be an environment that fosters murder. When faith in Jesus Christ is called mental illness by talk show hosts, while Christian clubs and Bibles are banned on school campuses, lone gunmen will come in their place. And then Bob quotes this verse from, Exodus, from Isaiah 5.20, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. When our culture tries to shove God out, there are lots of us who say, somebody do something. Reverse the culture of fragmentation, reverse the culture of evil, reverse the culture of tragedy that we live in. Somebody do something and we have these highlights of maybe Olympic hopes, but along with the Olympic hopes, there is a fair share of Olympic discouragements, Olympic dreams that die, Olympic disappointments. But we just cry out, God, do something. The state of our culture is such that we need someone to do something. And in Romans 5, chapter 8, chapter 5, verse 8, Paul begins to talk about somebody who did something. It says, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In other words, while we were fragmented, while we were broken, while we were the ones who were part of the evil that was kept activating everybody, Christ said, when you were there, when you were in adultery, when you were in murder, when you were in the selfishness of your own ways, when you would just lie, when the inclination of your heart was evil, in that time, in that moment, that's when Christ chose to die for us. Christ sacrificially did something which brings eternal hope and rights all wrongs. Yet the response of a hostile world is, you start bringing up Jesus, their response is, I'm sorry, that's simply not enough. Don't bring your faith. Don't bring your answer. Don't bring a religious issue to this cultural issue. And they dismiss it saying that's simply not enough. They minimize what was and is and always will be God's pleasure to do through Jesus. 
We ask, well, what is God's pleasure to do through Jesus? What does he love to do? What brings God pleasure? What was the pleasure of God toward his creation from the beginning of time? What was his pleasure to do? What does it please God to do? What was his intent to do? How was God gonna initiate from the beginning of time through Christ, what was God going to do? Well, Ephesians chapter one, verse nine, Paul begins to talk and he says of God, he says, he, that's God, made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good what? His good pleasure. That it, this pleased God. It was a mystery according to what he willed, what he wanted to do. It was of his pleasure. It goes on and says, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reached their fulfillment to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under who? Under Christ. So listen, what, God, what Paul is saying is that God's pleasure, what he decided to do, what he wanted to do for you and for me, for every person in the law, for every person right here, right now, for the people that you and I love and know, for our world that's so fragmented, what God's pleasure was to do is to bring all these things, the tragedies, the tensions of life, the disappointments of life, the brutal experiences and the good, he wanted to bring all these things into unity under Jesus Christ. That was his pleasure. He's not surprised by the evil of the world. In fact, he says, it's my pleasure to bring all these things, to bring them to unity, to bring them to completion, to bring them to justice in everything under Christ. And our world is broken, it's fractured, it's sinful, it's tragic, and it's corrupt. But it has always been God's good pleasure to bring back the world together in unity, but he's gonna do it through Jesus Christ. That's always been his pleasure. That's always been his plan. That's always been his intent and it will be fulfilled. When our world writes off Jesus as a solution, they are extremely short-sighted. They begin to say, God, we demand there's a tragedy. God, if you were God, where were you when this awful thing happened? And they begin to take God and put him on trial and they begin to relate to God with human thoughts as if God's ways somehow are not higher than our ways. His mind is not bigger than our mind. His intent and his pleasure is long-term and he sees everything in its scope. That was always God's pleasure, but we as humans begin to put God on trial and sometimes reject him because there's evil in the world, and in doing so, we deny the own evil that's in our heart, our role in the tragedy. Sometimes the greatest tragedy is not what happens out in culture or the brutal offensive of others against others, but rather it's the brutal offensive of our own sin against a holy God. The world misses what has always been God's pleasure. His pleasure is always bring to bring all these things to unity in Jesus Christ. And so Peter is writing to people like you and me who are facing persecution, who are experiencing a brutal world, who live in a world that we see evil all around us. And these people are experiencing persecution. And Peter is telling us that we can show a hostile world God's pleasure, that he's pleased to be doing something about all the evils that they themselves even hate. And so Peter says this headline like this. He said, by living an obedient and victorious life under duress, a Christian can actually evangelize a hostile world. He's saying when you and I respond to the evils of the world and respond to persecution, when we respond in obedience to the Lord and we respond in doing the next right thing in a world of persecution, we can actually 
tell people that there is a God who's had a pleasure his whole existence, and it is his pleasure to bring all these tragedies and all these things to unity under Christ. And that will evangelize a hostile world. Now we've talked a lot over the last few weeks about persecution. We've talked a lot about what it is, what it could look like, that kind of thing, but I wanna define it a little further and I wanna give you a progress, a, a, uh, show you the pattern by which persecution arises and there's five steps according to Charles Pope. If you have your outline, take your outline out, take some notes, God's gonna to speak to you in and through it. He's gonna remind you some things about your life and I believe he's got a message that he wants for you here today. There are five steps to persecution. These are by Charles Pope. Number one, as a Christian, you will be stereotyped. What is stereotype? That means the description of a few is applied to all. So we're stereotyped. Let me ask you, are Christians stereotyped in media? Absolutely, right? You're like Ned Flanders, but now you're worse. You're a little more vilified than Ned. And so that you were stereotyped. And so they take a, the description of maybe what a few might look like or a few might do, and they apply it to all. So they'll say things like, all Christians are hypocrites. All Christians are closed-minded. All Christians don't get real life. And so they're going to stereotype you. Oh, you're bringing your religious faith. Oh, you're bringing that. All Christians are that way. And they kind of write you off and your opinions off. First of all, you'll be stereotyped. The next progression is this. As a Christian, you will be vilified. You'll be vilified. That means people speak words of hurt and hate to you. So they will say things like, you're so intolerant. They'll say things to you like, you're a homophobic. They will say things to you like, Christians are haters, which is always funny when people say things like that because they're vilifying you. So by their very speech, what they're doing is that they are speaking words of hurt and hate to you. So they are becoming haters. They are becoming Christophobic. They're showing that they're Christophobic. They are becoming hypocrites in their, in their actions. They are the ones who are becoming intolerant. But it doesn't matter. Like culture-wide, you and I are be stereotyped and we'll be vilified. We now make us the villains. Next, as a Christian, you will be marginalized. Marginalized. Your opinion and your views are not welcome in our culture. So you can have any opinion, any view, but as soon as you bring up the cause of Christ, as soon as you bring up the name of Jesus, as soon as you bring up what is a Christian value or integrity, it is mocked. Why would you ever do something so foolish as that? Why would you ever pursue integrity? Why would you ever pursue these things? It, it becomes mocked. Your opinions and your views, they're not welcome here. Keep that to yourself. Don't bring it up. That has nothing to do with the issue we're talking about. It's so short-sighted. It doesn't view the pleasure of God to bring all things to unity under Christ. It just says that you're over the line to mention the name of Jesus Christ. Would you say that we're stereotyped right now, that we're vilified and we're marginalized in our culture? Absolutely. I want to point out there's a, there is a progression in our culture toward persecution. As a Christian, next, you will be criminalized. Listen, in our world, there are plenty of countries. You could try to go visit them. There are plenty of countries where it is actually illegal to be a Christian. 
So if you're a Christian in that land, you know that if I'm found out that I'm a Christian in this land, it's actually illegal. There are logs and consequences that be carried out against me because it's illegal in that land to be a Christian. And then what it means is you'll be criminalized that laws are passed against Christian behavior, against Christian ideas or beliefs. So what will happen is you and I, we will be accused of unlawfully discriminating. You're unlawfully, because you're Christian thought, belief, or ideas, you're discriminating against what is the will of the culture. You might even be speaking hate speech. And there may come a day when pastors have to submit what they're going to talk about in their sermons to the governing authorities, bypassing the freedom of speech, just to ensure that you're not propagating criminalized behavior. You and I will be criminalized. And last, as a Christian, you'll be persecuted. That's where you're physically harmed. Maybe you just lose your job or your home or your livelihood, but you might get beat up too. You might get attacked. You might be martyred for your faith. And there are places in the world where that is a reality, even right now. So it goes from stereotyped to vilified, to marginalized, to criminalized, to persecuted. And America is on that course right now because we keep taking God and saying he has no place in this culture. And we keep missing the good pleasure of God to do something about the very things that together we hate. And we say that has no place here. It's not relevant in our situation. Listen, you could take the same list and I just wanna point this out. You could line that same list of progression up to a kid who bullies another kid at school, right? You could take that and go, oh, well, this bully stereotyped that kid and then they vilified that kid that they start speaking words of hurt and hate against them. And that, that bully started to marginalize that kid. Hey, you just shut your mouth. Your opinion's not even welcome here. You don't have the right to speak in this conversation. Who are you? They'll go on and they'll say, we're gonna ensure our own laws. We're gonna make our own laws against you. And then that kid is punched, hit, attacked, backed up in a bathroom in a public school and bullied. This is not an unusual pattern. This is a pattern our world's learning all too well. And some of you in this room, you go, well, I'm not in school, but I want you to compare this pattern maybe to your custody battle. Have you been stereotyped, vilified, marginalized, criminalized, and maybe prosecuted? How many of you have dissolved a business partnership? Have you ever gone through any of these and dissolving a business partnership? Do you see any similarities? Maybe you've had your job terminated. Do you see any similarities here and it doesn't make sense? How are we to respond? How are you and I to respond to actual persecution? Well, Peter has told us all throughout this book a couple things. He says, number one, don't repay evil for evil or insult for insult. And second, commit yourself to Christ. Commit yourself that he's gonna do something that he's got a plan, that it's in his very nature and pleasure to work something out, that that's what God is. Don't lose sight of that. Commit yourself to Christ and continue to do the next right thing. And so Peter picks up in chapter four, verse 12. He says, dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Jesus Christ, you are blessed 
for the spirit of glory and of God, it rests on you. And if you suffer, it should not be as a murderer or a thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. He's saying, listen, if you're gonna suffer, understand that you're sharing in the sufferings of Christ. That Christ is not asking of you something that he wasn't willing to go through himself. Christ, in fact, was stereotyped mostly by religious leaders. Then he was vilified. Then he was marginalized. Then he was criminalized. Then they arrested him, persecuted him, and put him to death. Jesus is not asking of you and me to go through suffering and saying, I'm not willing to do it, but hey, would you all do that for me? He's saying, I've done it. In fact, it's, it was part of my good pleasure to experience that for you with your sin, for me with my sin. So we suffer, we're insulted, we lose things. In the book of Mark chapter 10, Jesus is speaking to the crowd, but while he's speaking to the crowd, a uh, rich young man comes up to him and says, what, could I, what do I need to do to be a follower of you, Jesus? And Jesus, knowing the core issue, the root issue for this young man, he knew that for this young man, among all the things that could be endanger him or prohibit him, he knew that for that young man, that his comfort, his trust, and his security was in his wealth. And so he told that young man, well, for you, you're going to have to lay down. You have to give up your possessions, leave them behind, come follow me. And the scripture says that that rich young ruler went away sad because he had a lot of wealth. That, that he wandered away. Now, we don't know. Could he later on have said, you know what? Jesus was right. All my reliance and all my trust is in my security. It's in my comfort. It's in what I perceive to make me stable. And I need to give that up. But you know what? Scripture gives us no indication that that man ever followed Jesus. He was a fan of Jesus. I want to follow you. But when it came down to what it would actually take to follow him, he found out that he was just a fan. He was not a follower of Jesus. And Jesus begins to tell the crowd if this guy goes away that it is so hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. In fact, what he's talking about there is he's saying, it's so hard for you and me to enter the kingdom of God. When he says the rich, you just need to enter your name there. I'm not rich. Let me tell you what, if you have a car, you are richer than 60% of people on earth. Now, some of you are like, Dave, actually... That'd be 59% because the bank owns my car. That may be true. But just even having a car, let alone a house, I mean, you go to India and where I park my car is nicer than the house. The believers in Jesus Christ live in there. My car house is better than their home. We're rich. We are rich. And so often it's easy for us to put our security in what we perceive to be our comfort, but then persecution comes along and it, it begins to test us when, when you have to think about what would I be willing to lose to obey Jesus, to forfeit, to suffer, to obey sacrificially. In fact, sometimes just obedience is enough suffering on its own. When you think I have to give that to you, Jesus, I'll give you all sorts of things, but I wanna give you that. I wanna say what I wanna say. I want to do what I want to do, and I will still follow you, Jesus. Jesus is going, no, 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 no. 
obedience is sacrificial. And sometimes we obey that way. Well, this rich young man went away sad because he had great wealth. He had a lot to lose. So this rich dude stops following Jesus. And in the very next verse, there's some other guys who are standing around. And these guys are thinking, well, we've left some stuff to follow you, Jesus. Right? As Jesus is teaching and talking, he's got 12 disciples. Right? They're right with him. And so these guys are thinking, well, huh, that guy wasn't willing to lose his house or lose his friends or walk away from his business or his employment or whatever. But, but they're thinking, but we have. And so the very next verse in Mark 10, 28 says this, then Peter spoke up. Who spoke up? Okay, you mean Peter, the, the, the guy who actually wrote the book that we're studying? So he's standing there going, hey, that rich guy, he didn't follow you, but we walked away from our fishermen nets. We walked away from our job employment. We walked away from our family heritage. We walked away from our family members. And you can't tell me that in three and a half years of waiting for this Messiah, this God to do something, like overthrow the Romans, do something. We want to be with you. We think that you could be the next king. They had no idea what was in the pleasure of God to do long-term. They were so short-sighted. But you got to tell me, like, Peter's sitting there going, dude, we, we gave up some stuff, right? So the verse says this. The very next verse after this situation with the rich and ruler says, Mark 10, 28. Then Peter spoke up. We have left everything to follow you. Truly I tell you, Jesus replied, no one who has left. Now, you might put the word lost. Maybe they lost their home. They, they intentionally left it. It would be another way of losing, right? So no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields, that would be your employment, for me and your wealth and for the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and fields, along with persecutions, and in the age to come, eternal life. So if you're Peter, you're saying, um, <clears throat> rich guy wasn't willing to follow you, but we did. And Jesus turns around and goes, yes, you gave up all that. In fact, if you give up all that, you're going to get a hundred times as much. So everyone cheer right now, like, yeah, woo! Come on, help me out here. Cheer, cheer with me a little bit. Woo! That's good news, right? And so he's like, seriously, we get like homes and we get brothers and sisters. And, and then Jesus slides this one in. He's like, along with persecutions. What? what? Looking at the other guys, cheering stops. Like, Is Jesus saying that if you, if you lost much, you're going to receive even more? Is it health and wealth theology that he's preaching? No, he's saying, if you walk away from your family, if you walk away from those who reject you, you it's okay. You're going to enter my forever family. You're not going to just have one mother who maybe doesn't believe what you believe and reject you, but you're going to have a forever family in me. You're going to walk away from your house, but you're going to become the household of the living God. You're a, a house of living stones. You are my temple. I'm going to indwell you. Like Jesus is saying, what you gain even in this life is so much bigger. You're going to get persecuted. Oh, and by the way, then you get eternal life. It's hard to be a follower of God sometimes, isn't it? You hear a lot of other stuff, you're like, that's good. But Jesus says, I want you to understand it is good, but it is not without persecution. That's part of the deal. And so Jesus sometimes is standing there looking at us saying, somebody do something. 
you've got to do something with what I'm offering you. When I was looking at where to go to grad school, I grew up in Southern California and I went to Biola University and then I thought I'm gonna go to seminary, which is three years full-time school to get a Master of Divinity. You have to take it over a year of Greek, over a year of Hebrew. You have to take all sorts of ministry courses. It's not like a, uh, some master's degrees are very short-lived or part-time. It is full-time school, three years out of college and just saying, where God, where do you want me to go? Now, I'm at Biola University and Talbot Theological Seminary is right on campus. I could just go from one to the other. That's, that is an easy shoe in for me, but I'm looking to go and God will go where you want me to go. So I looked in Trinity in Chicago. I looked at Dallas Theological Seminary in Dallas. I looked at Denver Seminary in Denver, Colorado, and just say, God, where do you want me to go? And I, I spent about six months just praying, God, I know they're all good options, but what do you know to be best? What do you want in my life? I want to really want what you want. I want what's in your pleasure, God, for my life? I remember going down one night to the beach and uh, down in Seal Beach, and I'm out on the sand at nighttime. And it's beautiful because you got the waves coming in and they make so much noise. Even if someone's like 30 feet from you, they can't hear a thing you say. And it's just a good place to talk to God. But I'd, in this process over six months, had really come to the conclusion, all right, God, it's come down between Talbot, which is right where I already live and everything that I've got, or I've got to go to Denver where I only know one person. And by the way, he's married with a kid, which means that he's totally unavailable. I don't know anybody. Because if you're a single guy, that, yeah, that friend's not available to you if that's the case, right? And so I'm God, where do you want me to go? But I had really come to the point where I just knew, I knew in my spirit what God was speaking to me and it was to, to lose everything I knew and all my comforts and go to Denver. And you get it, right? That's costly. Like I was in the ministry working with kids that I loved and, and people that were being impacted through the gospel of Jesus Christ. I was dating a girl at the time. I was playing in a band. I, I uh, could live with my same roommate if I just stayed because he was one year younger than me. And so I, we'd be in the same dorm room. I would just go to grad school while he was going to college. I mean, all my friends would be the same. Everything was right here, but I could just tell in my spirit that God was calling me to go, to go to the place I don't know, to the place I don't understand. But he has something in his pleasure there for me. And some of you have lost, you get it. It's like taking what you have and you say, okay, God, I'm willing to lay that down. I'm willing to set it down in a pile over here. So God, you're telling me to go. I'm gonna take all these things I'm gonna lose and I'm gonna go and that's obedience to you. And, and, and this pile that's growing here, that's evidence that I actually follow you. This pile's growing up and it's evidence that I follow you. So sometimes God, when, I, when you say, give that to me, and it's sin in your life or my life, you say, God, I'm gonna, I'm gonna figure out how to give that to you. And we put it on there and it is costly because you love that sin. You're passionate about it. It brings you pleasure, but it's the kind of pleasure that brings regrets, but you still love it. And you lay that down and we obey Christ and we follow him. And sometimes we're persecuted from outside. And God, this is uncomfortable. This is painful from these people, even in my own family. And we lay that, God, I'm gonna lay that in the pile as evidence that I follow you. I remember getting that point. I just start on the beach. I just start crying because I just realized I can't see what I'll gain, but I see everything I'm gonna lose. And so I came back to my dorm room and I wrote a poem. And I'm gonna share it with you. So you wanna be gracious to me, but it's just called Following is Humbling. And I wrote this, just thinking back over life. I said, at a young age, you called me. I couldn't sleep in the night. You were calling me to ministry and against it, I'd fight. Lord, I fell to my knees. 
and I gave in to your call, knowing I'd only be happy following you after all. And in the passion of the moment and the heat of the night, your spirit is upon me, showing me what's right. And may I ever go the direction you send and take your light to the dark once again, because following is humbling and my portion humility holds. May each costly thing I lose be evidence of he who follows. I see only what I'll lose, things I've worked hard to build. My security grows shaky. Will my dreams be fulfilled? Lord, you've been faithful to me every moment since then, and it has proved to me that you'll be faithful once again. I cry out my fears and the things that I will lose. And though they seem so important, it's you that I choose. So help me to see the eternal and not the here and now. Change my desires to match yours somehow. In the passion of the moment, in the heat of the night, your spirit is upon me, showing me what's right. And may I ever go the direction you send and take your light to the dark once again, because following is humbling and my portion humility holds. May each costly thing I lose be evidence of he who follows. And when I stand before you, you will know what I've lost and will show me your scars because I too have felt the cost. So here I am, I'm struggling in college about what I would lose then, but let's just have an honest conversation for a moment. The older we get, the more we have to lose. I mean, that was college, right? But think about your life now. Think about your comfort now. Think about your passion and your zeal to follow Jesus. What are you willing to lose now? Homes, family members, relationships, Are you willing to lay down your sin and be obedient? What evidence is there that you've laid things down willing to follow Jesus? Because I would suggest that if there's no evidence there, then you're just a fan of Jesus. You're not actually a follower. And when persecution strikes, you're going to walk away sad because you know on the inside, I'm not willing to lay down any evidence to follow Jesus. Something about the older we get, we look back and go, where, where did that young passion, that zeal go? And God challenges us right where we are right now. See, the problem is we're, we're trying to cling to the things that we're guaranteed to lose. We, we don't take it with us. And then when it goes the wrong way, when we do lose things, then we accuse God saying, somebody do something. It just doesn't seem fair. It doesn't seem just. Seems like the older I get, my health goes away, my life ebbs, my strength goes away. Things didn't work out in all my relationships how I wanted to. And we say, somebody do something. Let me tell you something. It is an honor to sacrifice for Christ and his church. One of our core values here at Sun Grove is that we give up things we love for things we love even more. It's what Jesus showed us in the Garden of Gethsemane. He loved his comfort. He didn't want to suffer. Yes, but he loved us more than he loved his comfort. So he was willing to give up something he loved to sacrifice for something he loved even more. And one of our core values as a church is that it's an honor to sacrifice for Christ in this church. And at our church, we will basically do this. Some of you have given up to be here. You, you've given up. You sacrificed stained glass windows. You've sacrificed a hymnal 
in the chair underneath the seat in front of you. You've, you've let aside the trappings potentially of religion, but you said, God, I want to be a part of a church where I grow. I want to be a part of a church that is the church to the world. I want to be a part of a church where people come to Jesus all the time. That's the kind of church I want to be a part of. So we sacrifice some things we love and reminisce about for the greater good, for something we love even more. Some of us have sacrificed, maybe even it's a style of music or whatever, but at Sun Grove Church, everything we do is for the next generation. We say, I will lay aside my comforts as I get older. I'm going to lay them aside because that next generation needs to see the beautiful, big pleasure of God throughout all of history that he wants to make everything right under Christ. And I'm going to lay aside my comfort. Now it's all about me and my investment. It's an honor to sacrifice for Christ and his church. And we ask the same thing of our young people. We say, will you sacrifice Wildwood at Hume Lake? where it's all about you and just investing in you and your life, will you sacrifice that? And will you instead invite a friend to camp and get all about Pondo, which is incredibly spiritual, but how do you think your life is gonna change? Is your life gonna change more because we just invest in you, 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 or is your life gonna change more because you brought a friend who came to Jesus, who for the first time saw the pleasure of God to bring all things under unity in Christ? Your life will radically change there. So we give up things we love, we love it but we give it up because we love something else more. It's an honor to sacrifice for Christ and his church. It pleases God when we, when we obey him and we lay down evidence that God, you're asking me to give you that sin that I cherish and I lay it down as evidence of he or she who follows. So Peter says it this way in chapter four, verse 16. However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God you bear that name. What name? Christian. What is Christian? It's a little Christ. For it's time for judgment to begin with God's household. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if it's hard for the righteous to be saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? So he basically is saying this, that this pruning that happens is going to happen first in God's household. Persecution will quickly differentiate those who are sacrificial followers of Jesus and those who are just fans. So the judgment in a sense begins in the house of God because it's gonna kind of decide who's a true follower of Christ. But he's making the appeal, he's saying, but how much worse is it for those who reject Christ all along, who never know him, who haven't understood the gospel or reject it, what will their end be? It's better to have some judgment in the house of God then have the outcome for those who reject Christ their entire life. So he says, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear his name as a Christian. And he wraps up with this verse. So then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. So he's saying, don't quit. Don't give up. Don't get lazy. Don't coast. Commit yourself to the fact that God did something. And it's been his pleasure all along to unify everything through Jesus Christ. So keep doing the next right thing. Do good. Build his kingdom. Be proud that you bear the name of Jesus Christ in a culture that can't stand that name. You have everything to live for. And the future starts now for a people who are crying out and asking somebody, do something. 
And every human answer to that problem will still leave them lacking and wanting. But when the Christian lives an obedient, victorious life under duress, they can actually evangelize a hostile world. Listen, God has and always intended to and always will do something. He's done it when he went to the cross and took your sin and my sin upon himself. My question is, what have you done with the something that God did? Because he demands that we do something with that sacrifice that he gave. The question is, are we going to say, God, I need forgiveness of my sin. It can only be found through your sacrifice on the cross. With your heads bowed, your eyes closed, maybe today that just made sense the first time and you want to ask Jesus to forgive you of your sin. You want to put and give faith to what he did on the cross. And if that's you right now where you're seated, you just feel that tug on the inside of your heart, then you pray a prayer like this right after me. It's just God drawing you because he loves you. And you just say something like this, Jesus, today I give you me. I ask you to come into my heart and make me a new creation. I ask you to forgive me of all my sin. I believe you can because you died on the cross for me. You were buried. You rose to new life because you were God. Would you wash me as white as snow? Because today, Jesus, I give you me. Right now, if you prayed that prayer, will you raise your hand? Right here in the front, awesome. Right there in the front, awesome. Anywhere else, got you right over there. Anywhere else, just hold your hand up so I can see it. All the way in the back, I saw you. It's the greatest decision you could ever make to finally surrender to Jesus, not to be a fan, but to be a follower and to find new life in him. That your life would be unified with God through Jesus. It gives him great pleasure to have you come to peace with him through Jesus. It's a beautiful thing. God, I wanna thank you for those who made that decision first hour. I thank you for my brothers and sisters who today made the decision. I pray that you would make yourself so real to them this week that they would know beyond a shadow of a doubt, it has always been your good pleasure to bring peace between them and you as you extend your love to them. We pray in Jesus' name and all God's people said, Amen. Will you give it up for what God is doing among us? Thanks so much for joining us on this podcast with Sungrove Church. We hope it was really encouraging for you in your walk with Christ and that you have some things to apply moving forward, some inspiration for the present, and some hope about what God is doing in your past. We're so grateful to be doing life with you. We would love to be connected as part of the global community of believers and to encourage you in your walk with Christ. You can find that at www.sungrove.org or on social media at Sungrove Church.